Well, hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life, back to the old school format. I hope you've enjoyed the last three weeks, um, our special mini-series, I suppose in a way, trying to deal with some of the issues, maybe just a few of the issues of where we are with photography today. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I've had some feedback uh, to say that you did. Um, if you haven't already fed back, please do get in touch via the website as always. Um, so over the summer, I've uh, been writing, writing a, a book, actually finishing another book, but also keeping my eyes open as always to little bits and pieces, things that have been happening. And as always, after we've had uh, a few special episodes, I like to get back to um, lots of little bits and pieces. So the first thing I just wanted to uh, share with you, I suppose, this week is something I saw um, which was being uh, promoted by a Landscape Photographer of the Year, a competition for amateurphotographer.com. And um, it was put out via Photojournalism News on uh, threads, and uh, they gave it the hashtags uh, Photojournalism, Photography, and Journalism. Well, I thought that's kind of interesting because... The picture which was uh, promoting the competition, they were listing the shortlisted um, uh, entrance, was a very um, misty, heavily post-produced image of, I think, probably some, uh, maybe by the sea, maybe some dunes, something like that. It's actually so soft overall as an image, it's very difficult to work out what it was. But anyway... So I clicked on and I had a look at the uh, magazine's um, page where they listed the work. And, um, well, there was nothing to do with journalism there at all. Um, there was certainly nothing to do with photojournalism. And, uh, but this is what they said about the work. They said traditional landscape photography has been well served by the competition over the years. But this year... The addition of a drone category, as well as macro and abstract expressionism, has seen a more diverse range of entries. These coupled with a special award for change in the landscape, which reflects the changing use of land and the changes having an impact on our landscape, have given greater scope to storytelling for photographers. Uh, this year, Landscape of the Photographer of the Year has embraced the wide diversity of landscape photography, by reaching out to those practising creative expressionism, environmental comment and aerial drone photography, while also keeping in touch with our hugely supportive community across the world, said the competition founder, Charlie Waite. Well, if you're into that kind of uh, landscape photography, I'm not dismissing it here in any way, but it is a type of work which is very prevalent amongst the amateur photography magazines and those people who may be a member of camera clubs and so forth. Um, you'll all know about Charlie Waite because he's a big name in that world. Now, here's the problem I had looking at the work. It doesn't to me, and there was a group of people who were the uh, judges, it didn't to me uh, have any connection with what I've just read. What I actually saw was a group of images which were very, very, very highly post-produced to a point at which they became digital art, which is fine. But it is a step away from the idea 
of photography and the changing uses and storytelling of photography that I see in landscape photography. The work that was being created, and I have to say, I'm somewhat um, bemused, I suppose, by the use of the phrase abstract expressionism, because I certainly didn't see any abstract expressionism in the work I was looking at, not as I understand it anyway, in its truest sense. But the work that I saw was all about aesthetic. It was all about kind of, it was almost poster art. It was that horrible kind of chocolate box art where it becomes about taking it away from being the truth, the pure photography. Now, that's okay if it's a category within the winners, but all of the images look like this. Therefore, it's creating an idea amongst those people who read Amateur Photographer, which by the name of the magazine sort of states very clearly who its intended audience is, that that is what landscape photography is, in 2023. And it isn't. It is diverse. It is connected with storytelling. It is challenging lots of different conceptions of photography. Unfortunately, the pictures they shortlisted have nothing to do with that. This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to us what does photography mean to him in under uh, five minutes. It's Nicholas Sinclair, uh, who was born in London in 1954 and who studied uh, fine art at the uh, and the history of art, I should say, at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne between 1973 to 1976. His career as a photographer began in 1982 while playing the drums in a Moroccan circus. Uh, he began taking photographs of the circus acts between performances, photographs that were uh, then published by the British Journal of Photography in 1983 and exhibited at the University of Sussex in the same year. After the season ended, he visited other circuses with the aim of extending the series. The work was subsequently shown at the National Theatre in 1985 and at the Photography Centre of Athens in 1986. Well, in 1987, he began photographing British artists in their studios, a series of portraits that spans 30 years and includes Anthony Caro, Gillian Waring, Fran Arbach, an abstract expressionist, by the way, uh, Gilbert and George, Paula Rago and Richard Hamilton. Work from this series is now in the permanent collections of European museums and galleries, including the National Portrait Gallery and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. 47 of these portraits are in the collection of the Pallant House Gallery in Chichester, where they were exhibited in 2014. In 1995, he was commissioned by Brighton Museum and Art Gallery to make a series of photographs of contemporary fetishism for inclusion in the exhibition Fetishism, uh, visualising power and desire. In 2002, Sinclair published his first book of landscape photographs, wow, almost as if this was planned, entitled Crossing the Water, a series made on the perimeter of a lake over a 12-month period. In 2003, he was made a Hasselblad master, and in 2009, Sinclair moved to Berlin and established a studio there in 2011. In 2019, a German production company made a 30-minute documentary about his work, and he was appointed visiting professor at Richmond, the American International University in London. 
In 2021, Sinclair published Polaroids, a book of studio portraits to mark 10 years of working in the studio and a short film entitled Rhythm of the Blood. He is currently working on a new series of photographs titled Neon Trees Miscellany, made in East Berlin. Quite a long intro this week. Let's hear from Nicholas. I think I knew from a very early age that I would become an artist. When I was about 14 years old, I started to make Indian ink drawings. The subject was always the same. It was always trees. I was looking at artists like Samuel Palmer, Paul Nash and Ivan Hitchens at the time, and they were clearly having an influence. And I would make these paintings almost every day. And this was probably the first sign of my obsession with image making. And it's never left me. When I was at school, I was either listening to music or painting pictures. These were my two obsessions. And more than 50 years later, it's pretty much the same. After leaving school, I studied fine art and art history at Newcastle University. But in the 1970s, a career as a painter in Britain didn't seem possible for me. So I became a professional drummer. In the northeast of England at that time, you could work most nights and earn a modest living. And that's what I did for about six years. And then I had this slightly unusual crossing over from music into photography. I was working in a small Moroccan circus in 1982. It was a horrible job, not a single day off in six months, but I started to take photographs between shows and this gave the job a meaning for me. I had no training, so I was making a lot of mistakes, but I became very focused on learning, both the craft and the history, and it felt like I had found my vocation. I remember saying to one of the clowns I was working with, I'm going to make a photographic record of this circus, but without people. And he didn't hesitate. He said, you'll never do it. The circus is about people. And he was right, of course. And that's when I first started to make portraits. I asked the circus ads if I could photograph them. So my entry into portrait photography was quite accidental. I'm fascinated by the process of making portraits, the engagement, the complexity, the intimacy of it. And I often think of it as being like a conversation between two people, an exchange of ideas. But in portraiture, these ideas are transmitted silently through the eyes and through body language. So when I'm making a portrait, I'm watching for where the person is emotionally during the session. Are they present? Are they engaged with the process? Or have they retreated into their own inner world? Or are they putting up a barrier between themselves and the camera? I've experienced all these things. I work in a very simple way. I have no computer or monitor in the studio, just a neutral backdrop, a single studio light and reflectors. So it's quite low key. I let the session evolve slowly. I stay open to different possibilities and I keep watching. For me, the picture must work aesthetically as well as emotionally. I need to be convinced by both elements. So the challenge in every portrait is to find that combination. I need good construction. 
And by that, I mean the relationship between the subject and the background, highlights and shadows, line and tone, colour and movement. They all have to play their part. And it's the same when I visit an artist to make their portrait. I'm using all the same skills, but in a different setting. The background will be their studio, not mine. I'm sometimes incorporating the artist's work or their materials into the composition. I may be using natural light, but the principles are the same. Emotional weight, good construction and a feeling of authenticity. And then there's that elusive element, the feeling you have when you look at the picture, the connection you make with the sitter. Achieving these things is what makes portraiture so fascinating. For me, editing is one of the most important skills to have in photography, to recognize and select the strongest image from a shoot and to edit out the weaker images, to know what is working and why. The German artist Frank Auerbach said, the difference between a good artist and a great artist is in the editing. And I think he had a point. For me, it's, um, it's a very instinctive process. I look for an image that connects, that feels right. And you see this in the person's eyes, in their gaze. As humans, we're programmed to read each other's emotions through eye contact. And we do it automatically and unconsciously. As soon as we meet somebody, we're reading them, looking for signs. It's a basic survival mechanism. And as a portrait photographer, I'm taking these elements and using them to make pictures. Thank you very much, Nicholas, for your contribution this week. I think an absolute masterclass in portrait photography. Nothing there I don't agree with and that I don't also put into practice in my own work. Um, something I'd like to just uh, do this week, oh, of course, if you aren't aware of Nicholas's work, check him out, check out his website. And also I put a link to a film of him actually explaining how he makes his portraits on the unitednationsofphotography.com page where this podcast is posted. Uh, something I wanted to do, as I was just about to say, is a thank you to one of our listeners, uh, Sam B, who is at Shmoa Hawk, that's S-H-M-O-A Hawk, on Twitter. And he contacted me to say, I am pleased to inform you that I have now listened to all 271 episodes of A Photographic Life. To mark the occasion, I'll now listen to The Pretender's mystery achievement. Um, as I said to uh, Sam, I think he may need help. But anyway... Thank you so much to him and to all of you who are so conscientious and uh, listen to every episode. Um, I think you've probably listened to more than I have. On a slightly uh, darker note, I've been having conversations recently with quite a few people who've let me know of uh, redundancies coming up in the autumn, uh, either to themselves or to people they work with. Um, I think it's really important as photographers, and we can sometimes feel quite disconnected from our clients, from the people who are in full-time jobs. And look on those people as being very fortunate. Well, they are fortunate in that they may well have a steady income. But as I think we're about to find, specifically in the photographic community, a lot of those people are going to have a, a difficult time and a difficult autumn and winter. So as always, uh, we put our arm around their shoulder and uh, we try and help them as best we can.
I think we can all agree that whatever kind of photography that we produce, whether it's landscapes, portraits, or whatever else it may be, um, one thing that we do do is that we leave something behind. I don't mean a lens cap or uh, something else like that. I'm always leaving lens caps behind on shoots. I'm sure you are as well. But something more tangible. And I saw a little piece of writing by Ray Bradbury over the summer from his book, Fahrenheit 451 that I thought was worth sharing with you. It says this, everyone must leave something behind when he dies. My grandfather said, a child or a book or a painting or a house or a wall built or a pair of shoes made or a garden planted, something your hand touched some way so your soul has somewhere to go when you die. And when people look at that tree or that flower you planted, you're there. It doesn't matter what you do, he said, so long as you change something from the way it was before you touched it into something that's like you after you take your hands away. The difference between the man who just cuts lawn and a real gardener is in the touching, he said. The lawn cutter might just as well not have been there at all. The gardener will be there for a lifetime. I think that's the perfect description of photography and making of photographs. As always, disagree with me if you wish. These are just opinions that appear on this podcast. They're not absolutes or facts, but I always hope that they're useful to you listeners. A lot of you are getting in touch at the moment, and that's really great. Please email me, get in touch through threads. I'm not on Twitter that much anymore, but you can always try that. Photo Life Pod on Twitter or at UNAphoto on threads. Or why not drop me an email directly through the United Nations of Photography.com website? Um, I had quite a lot to talk about this week and I haven't covered it all. So that's going to take a few, uh, a few little stories into next week, which is always good. Anyway, I hope you've had a good summer. I hope you're having a good summer. I'm only using the word had because mine's over and my week away was a week of rain. But there you go. That's what happens when you stay in the UK for your summer holidays. Anyway, lots going on, lots happening. As always, the autumn is looking busy. I'll keep you informed as I go along of all the different things that are happening and coming up that you might want to engage with. In the meantime, you know what I'm going to say. Take care.